Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Cecilia Munoz, the former director of the White House Domestic Policy Council under President Obama and an expert on immigration policy. Before joining the government, Munoz, the daughter of Bolivian immigrants, worked at the National Council of La Raza, the Hispanic advocacy organization. She now works at the New America Foundation. And I wanted to have her in today to talk about the Trump administration's immigration policy, how it differs from Obama's immigration policy, and the state of play of this very important issue. Cecilia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with a big question, and then we can kind of buckle down, which is, how has American immigration policy changed the most over the past nearly year and a half? Oh, um, I guess the way to boil it down is that we used to have a policy based on the premise that immigrants were good for America. And we now have at least a policy regime or policy makers in place who believe that immigrants are bad for America. And that's kind of driving the whole conversation. And so when when you say immigration, you're talking illegal immigration and legal immigration, I assume. Yeah. Well, the current administration has demonstrated its hostility to both. So what is the biggest change that's come about? Let's start with legal immigrants who are here or people who have been here for a very long time. We're not talking I'm not talking about border crossings or refugees trying to come over uh, to America, Mm -hmm. but people who are in the United States. What has been the biggest change? So there are categories of folks who are legally in the United States who are in some cases legal permanent residents, but who have seen family members um, or certainly members of their communities uh, denied visas that they used to take for granted. So I guess technically, if you really know your way around immigration law and immigration policy, these are so-called non-immigrant issues, but that's not really the way it feels to people who are parts of the United States. In some cases, people who've been in the United States with permission to work for decades, who are now being told, no, actually, thank you very much, but now you're going to need to leave the country. So I'm referring to, for example, people who are here um, with something called temporary protected status. In some cases, they've been here for decades. They're from countries like Honduras or El Salvador, who they have had this temporary protected status for a really long time. It gets renewed every few years. They've been able to work in many cases In fact, in most cases, they've built lives here, they have children here, they run businesses here, this is their home. And the sort of assumption that has been true since the 1990s with respect to people who have TPS, which is that this status will keep getting extended, is no longer true. This administration has demonstrated that it is willing to revoke that status and it expects people to return back to countries where um, it may still be dangerous to return and where... In many cases, they haven't been for decades. So there are other statuses of people in the same situation where it makes eminent sense for them to be able to stay legally. And this administration is actually revoking their ability to stay legally. So if they stay, they're going to be here illegally or they have to go back somewhere where they're going to be less productive, where their lives are not at all certain. Another huge example of this, of course, are the DREAMers, people with DACA, with um Deferred action on childhood arrivals. It's about nearly 800,000 who um, uh, can expect their ability to stay and work and go to school legally in the United States to be has been revoked by this administration. There are court battles about this. The administration teed up a legislative battle, which didn't produce anything. But the bottom line in that case is that these are hundreds and thousands of people who came to the U.S. as children illegally have grown up here, in most cases, no, no other country. Um, this is their home. 
Uh, they feel as American as you or I feel. But this administration is saying, no, you're going to have to go back. Um, so those that's a big change. Let me ask you about the Dreamers specifically. Uh, how do you think the situation is most likely to resolve itself? I know we have court cases winding their way through the courts to decide whether Trump can uh, rescind the program. And it seems like Democrats for a while seemed like they would threaten to shut down the government for an extended period of time unless there was mm-hmm. a legislative solution. Is is sort of everyone kicking the can down the road until maybe Democrats control the House in 2018 and 2019 and can propose a legislative solution? How do you see this resolving itself in the courts and in Congress? I wish I knew. I mean, we're really living in a time where a lot of the things you could assume about the kind of the way the laws of physics work in Washington aren't working. So it's really impossible to know how this is going to get resolved. There are court battles. We obviously don't know what the courts are ultimately going to decide. But so far, those court battles have uh, have landed on the side of the dreamers um, and against the administration for making the argument that the, that they have to, that the law requires them to revoke the program. Um, I was involved in drafting this program. I know it is sound under the law, but being sound under the law doesn't always mean that the, the courts are going to make the right decision. And it's impossible to say whether Congress, some future Congress is going to act to protect the Dreamers. Here's what we know. We know that a majority of the House of Representatives supports protecting the Dreamers. There are Republicans who have signed on to letters to that effect. And we know that the vast majority of the Democratic caucus supports them. But what we can't predict is whether or not Congress will take action. This is a Congress which has difficulty getting up in the morning, let alone taking action on important issues. And having the requisite number of votes doesn't mean an issue will get to the floor. In fact, we know there is a fight underway in the House of Representatives right now as to whether or not uh, there will be a vote on anything related to the Dreamers. And and the reason there's a fight is because some Republicans um, are insisting on a vote and have invoked a procedure called Queen of the Hill, which would allow a number of things to come up for a vote, but the speaker is fighting back very hard. So it's impossible to say whether we'll see action in this Congress. And while you would certainly assume we would see action in a democratically controlled Congress, if if that's what we get, uh, the president still has to sign legislation for it to become law. And we just can't predict what the outcome is likely to be. You talked about both the Dreamers and TPS, or the temporary protected status that we see for Hondurans and Haitians and other groups of people who, as you say, have been allowed to stay in the United States because of things like natural disasters in their homelands, some for as much as 20 years. And although this was intended to be temporary, it's obviously cruel to kick people out of the country after they've been here for 20 years and may have no place to go back to. But what I'm curious about with both TPS and the Dreamers, was there more that could have been done in the previous administration to make these things permanent in a way that they could not be rescinded by an administration. I know none of us, certainly when this stuff started, imagined that we'd have a president like Donald Trump who would be taking this these positions on immigration. But, but were there things that Congress or the Obama administration, which you served, could have done to solidify these things legally and with legislation so this couldn't happen? So I can certainly speak for the previous administration because I was responsible for this area of policymaking. And we used absolutely every administrative tool we believe that we had under the law on behalf of immigrants. That was That's why we have DACA. It's why we had the 2014 executive actions. The president instructed his team to use every tool available, and we did. The problem here is that the um, executive branch does not have the capacity 
to uh, convert TPS into a permanent status. It doesn't have the capacity to, to make DACA a permanent thing. If we'd had that capacity, we would have used it. The DREAM Act came up for a vote in 2010. It passed the House of Representatives for the first time ever. We fell short by five votes in the Senate when there were 11 Republican senators who had voted for it or even co-sponsored it in the past. We didn't need all of them, but we didn't get enough of them um, to, to make the DREAM Act become law. So, there, yes, there's definitely more that Congress should have done. Congress passed, the Senate passed a strong bipartisan immigration reform in 2013. I know that we had the votes to pass something similar in the House, but we couldn't get the Speaker to bring it up for a vote. So, you know, it is a source of enormous frustration that we could see the finish line on a, a common sense immigration reform, but we couldn't get the House of Representatives to act. And that's why we are in the situation that we're in now. Obama was criticized from the left, especially in his first term. Some people referred to him as the deporter in chief for ramping up deportations from the Bush administration. Do you think that that was a fair characterization? And in hindsight, how do you feel about the number of deportations that went on during the Obama years? I don't think it was a fair characterization. What we spent eight years doing in the Obama administration is the first ever uh, establishing the first ever set of enforcement priorities. Now, it people push back and say that it took too long for those uh, enforcement priorities to take hold. And I think that's a fair criticism. But the fact of the matter is, before the Obama administration, the enforcement strategy for people illegally in the U.S. was find as many of them as you possibly can and remove as many of them as you possibly can. What happened in the Obama administration is we started to draw some lines and set some priorities Right. So on the assumption that there are 11 million people which Congress deems removable, it's reasonable to use your enforcement resources to pick and choose who your priorities are for removal. And that the ultimately the strongest iteration of that was the 2014 enforcement priorities where we drew some clear boundaries. And very importantly, uh, the immigration authorities respected those boundaries as they conducted immigration enforcement around the country. So what you saw was removal of people who had been convicted of crimes. But even when a warrant was being acted upon against somebody who was convicted of a crime, if there were other undocumented immigrants in that home, DHS was not removing them. They were following a set of priorities that was clearly articulated that the enforcement agency itself participated in developing. And that was an enormous sea change for an agency that is not known for its use of discretion or its discernment with respect to how it enforces the law. Uh, that was That's an enormous contribution that the Obama administration put forward that got reversed in the current administration. And we're back to a free-for-all in which anybody who is, uh, is undocumented, evidently the administration thinks this is fair game. And the result is not just a terrible climate of fear where people now are fearful of contact with any civic authority because they fear they could get caught up in immigration enforcement, which has a, a, a very negative effect on our ability to, to address crime in any community. But even from a law enforcement perspective, the the effectiveness of what this administration is doing from a from the perspective of public safety and security is terrible. They're actually undermining the public safety and security in the name of being tough on immigration enforcement. What the Obama administration uh, attempted to do was find a balance, set some priorities the way any law enforcement agency has to do, um, and make those priorities stick. Uh, that's not easy policymaking to do. It's not easy to execute on. I think we were able to demonstrate that it's possible. 
And it will be very, very hard to get to that place again, given what we are living with now. I, I just want to ask a follow-up about that, which is that, you know, I'm not an expert on immigration policy, but, you know, in preparation for this interview, I've been talking to reporters and activists who who work on the issue. And I've heard uniformly that there was a sense, and the Obama administration officials did not try to deter them from this point of view, that the stepped-up pace of deportation, specifically in the first term, up through 2013 or so, was meant to be kind of a building block for a bipartisan solution. And that if Obama showed that he was very serious about enforcing immigration laws and deportations, that it would make it more likely that a bipartisan bill with Republican support could pass. As you said, in 2013, a bill did pass the Senate, but it did not become law. And so I'm wondering if you think, given that nothing was able to pass, if you think that that was a mistake. So let me push back on the assertion. I I am very familiar with the advocacy groups and even journalists who believe that the that there was a calculation made in the Obama administration to be tough on enforcement as a way to build uh, credibility towards immigration uh, reform. I was there all eight years. I will tell you that that's not the calculation. Look, we took very seriously the oath that you take when you assume office to uphold the law, and this is a broken law that we tried mightily to fix. What we tried to do was enforce the law with a strategy and with a set of priorities. It is important for any administration to demonstrate that it's that it's willing and able to do its job. Ultimately, your job is to enforce the law such as it is, even as you try to, to reform it. Uh, that's what we tried to do. It is true that it would be definitely harder for the administration to advance in immigration reform if it could be accurately accused of shirking its responsibilities. But ultimately, we upheld our responsibilities because that's what you're supposed to do when you're in office. And we tried to do it in a way um, that moved us closer to enforcing the law in a way that reflected American values and in a way that that reflected reasonable law enforcement priorities. Uh, but I, I recognize that that's not the narrative, but I will just tell you, I was there all eight years, and I know what the rationale was behind the choices that the administration made. You mentioned in a previous answer, which I just want to go back to, that the policy that the Trump administration is pursuing is actually bad for law enforcement. There was a long piece, I believe, in the LA Times about the degree to which immigrants, documented and undocumented, have stopped um, in California. This piece was about calling police for things like domestic abuse. C- can you talk a little yeah. bit more about what we know about the degree to which something like this can actually make it much more difficult to have crimes be reported because people are so scared of law enforcement? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's abundantly clear, and we're seeing it all over the country. This administration has been aggressively courting local law enforcement to to get into the business of immigration enforcement. It's been lifting up the voices of people like Sheriff Arpaio, who was convicted of abusing people's civil rights in the name of immigration enforcement. And what that has done is created a climate of fear so that you have people who, when they are victims of crimes, when they are witnesses to crimes, when they see public safety hazards and threats, are unwilling to call the authorities because that they believe and not, you know, not for nothing, that they may become targets of enforcement themselves if they call the police, if they call um, the, the authorities when there's a problem. We, um, this has been made worse by the fact that the immigration authorities are now looking for people when they are in court to pursue like a domestic violence claim, for example. The minute you show up in a courtroom, 
to uh, harass or even detain somebody who is trying to seek justice or protection under the law, you're sending a very clear signal. We don't care about protecting you. And when you send that signal, people will hunger down and and will stay away from civic authorities. And that makes everybody less safe. That's exactly what we're seeing around the country. And in some ways, the irony and tragedy of all of this is that the rhetoric is all about safety and security, and the outcome actually under undercuts that altogether. We'll get back to my conversation with Cecilia Munoz right after this. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, has been at the center of a number of controversial raids that we've seen. We've seen sort of viral videos mm-hmm. with ICE agents appearing disrespectful or dismissive of people's civil rights. I hope not to sound euphemistic here. Some on the left have talked about abolishing ICE, and I think that um, something about ICE is, will be part of the debate of the Democratic um, primaries in 2020. W- what do you think when you hear the words abolish ICE? And do you feel that the Obama administration should have done more or should have taken a different tack to kind of change ICE from the agency that we see it now? We did change ICE from the agency that we see now. Again, the the 2014 enforcement priorities took hold and ICE agents were behaving very, very differently from the way that they behave now. You know, I think the, the campaign to abolish ICE, I understand where it comes from and I understand the community's hatred of this law enforcement organization. It comes from a real and reasonable place. But at the end of the day, I, as a policy goal, I don't think abolishing ICE is realistic. And I also think it has the, the argument has the effect, has the potential to, to push away folks who ultimately we need on our side in order to make the kinds of reforms in the way ICE behaves and in the, and in the immigration laws themselves that we need on our side. So look, I think immigration enforcement, whether we like it or not, is a reality. I think where we can make a difference in is in how it is conducted. That's not an easy thing to do, but it is it is a vital thing to do. I don't think if the debate is is about how we conduct immigration enforcement, I think we can get somewhere very very different from where we are now. If the debate is whether there should be immigration enforcement, then I think we give the other side a really powerful tool to win hearts and minds. And, and I think that's a mistake. Abolishing ICE sounds very close to saying, well, maybe we don't need a border. Maybe we don't need immigration enforcement. If that's the argument people want to make, then, then they should make an argument to not have a border. But I don't believe that's where the country is. And I don't believe we can be successful in protecting people if that's the argument that we're making. If we want to protect immigrants, if we want to protect our values, if we want to have a law, uh, an immigration system that functions and is rational, then I think we need to be willing to address how do we think immigration enforcement should be conducted? What's the way to do that that actually values people's lives and their civil rights? And the abolish ICE argument doesn't touch those questions, and I think that's a mistake. Are there other areas uh, that you think liberal or democratic politicians, the way they talk about immigration, is harmful to the cause of you know more immigrants and gives ammunition to the right and on the issue of immigration, because we've we've sure seen the right benefit from it, regardless of what the polls say, both in the U.S. and in Europe. You know, this is, this is such a hard topic, and it's such an emotional topic. I mean, I've worked on immigration issues for 30 years now, and it is, it's this strange area where emotion takes over really 
on both sides of the debate, frankly. And it gets really hard to have a debate just based on the facts. We, we are having an absolutely crazy debate about the border, for example, as if the border were this, you know, out of control in the way that it was 20 years ago. The, we're having a debate about how to fix the border from two decades ago, and we're not having a conversation about what's happening in today's border. Mexican migration net is below zero, which means there's more people going from the U.S. to Mexico than there are coming from Mexico to the U.S. The situation we see at the U.S.-Mexico border is actually about migrants from Central America who are not largely not seeking to evade the authorities. They're actually coming and turning themselves in because because so many of them want to seek asylum because they they fear for their lives in their home countries. We don't have a set of laws that's adequate to that task, and we certainly don't have a regime at the border that's adequate to that task. We're not really having that debate, and we need to. One last ICE thing. You said of Tom Homan, am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. He was running ICE for Trump until recently. Um and you said, quote, I find the Tom Homan that I see on TV now unrecognizable compared to the one that I saw in the Situation Room. Is, That's right. is that something that you have seen more broadly with people who worked on immigration issues during the Obama administration who stayed on? Or is he kind of an exception to the rule? So the DHS, DHS is an enormous agency. You know, full of career law enforcement officers and, and, and other officials as well. It's not all a law enforcement agency. There's a whole division called USCIS, which is about processing visas and processing naturalization applications. Um, but, but, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of career officials. What I observed of the, um, immigration enforcement infrastructure is that you can, this is, this is too simplistic, but basically you can divide the world into, that world into two factions. There's the folks who are tough law and order guys who are, um, just think anybody who's undocumented, um, is the same, that all 11 million people are the same and are equally worthy of enforcement and you should just go after as many of them as you can find as harshly as possible. And then the other faction are folks who see themselves as law enforcement officers who want to go after bad guys and were interested in advancing enforcement priorities that were focused on public safety and security and people who are convicted of crimes and recognize that when there's 11 million undocumented people, you're never going to reach all of them. So you should pick and choose. And that's what a real law enforcement officer does. In the Obama administration, this latter group was ascendant. And in this administration, the former group is ascendant. And what I'll say about Tom Holman is, who was an ICE official who I worked with pretty closely, is that he helped develop the enforcement priorities that the Obama administration put forward. They weren't just developed by political officials, political appointees like me. We included, and Secretary Jay Johnson was was scrupulous about making sure his officers were developing these law enforcement priorities. And Tom Holman was helping lead that effort. And it produced a really good product um, and that folks in the advocacy community thought was really thoughtfully done. So that guy feels very different to me than the guy I see on TV. And look, we know that Officials in the Trump administration, when they go on TV, recognize that there is one very important person watching everything they say, and that is the president of the United States, and they adjust their rhetoric accordingly. So it was pretty shocking. For It was shocking for me to see that kind of rhetoric coming out of a guy who, who I experienced as a more thoughtful person. 
And I don't honestly don't know what the truth is. You have done work on the issue of Puerto Rican statehood and have written about Puerto Rico. How prepared is the island for another natural disaster as we're heading into the season where natural disasters tend to happen? Do you have some sense? I lose sleep over that. I lose a lot of sleep over that. Look, we know that the island has not recovered from the last one. There's still people without power. The state of medical care is um, is appalling. We are not applying the same standards that we apply to every other U.S. citizen living everywhere else in this country as we are applying to Puerto Rico. Evidently, we have demonstrated that we're willing to settle for much, much lesser treatment and much, much worse conditions for the American citizens who live on the island. And uh, we should be ashamed of that. And I am outraged by the inadequate federal response. I'm outraged by the lack of attention to what's happening in Puerto Rico. And I think we should be deeply worried about what happens to people on the island if there is another storm and we are entering hurricane season now. We would never accept people being without power for months at a time in any state of the United States, ever. It would be a scandal. And the fact that it's not a scandal and it's and the fact that it's not something that regular Americans talk about every day is appalling. Given what you just said, and, and I agree with you about um, the fact that there's kind of a lack of recognition that these are Americans, is there a long-term solution to Puerto Rico's status other than statehood? Which I know seems politically impossible now, but if, if we're ever going to sort of fix the fundamental imbalance there? Yeah, I mean, this is a very a, a question which is debated heavily on the island. Um, I wish it were debated more on the mainland. At the end of the day, Congress has to be, demonstrate its willingness to take seriously the wishes of the people of Puerto Rico. They've held a number of plebiscites on this question, which have been controversial, but ultimately which the United States Congress has ignored. Um, uh, I co-chaired a task force on the status of Puerto Rico um, in, the, in my first three years in the administration, which recommended that Congress pass self-executing legislation that basically says, we in advance agree to do whatever the people of Puerto Rico decide because we believe in democracy. Um, I think that's a solution that honors the wishes of the American citizens who live on the island. Um, but we are a long way from Congress. Um, look, we're, Congress isn't even paying attention to the fact that, uh, you know, people have died because they don't have generators so that they can get their oxygen but because they have medical conditions, you know, let alone paying attention to the question of the, of the political status of the island. So we have a long way to go before we actually respect the American citizens of uh, who live on the island uh, in the way that they deserve. Cecilia Munoz, thank you so much for coming on I Have to Ask. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening.